Lord, we ask that your spirit might teach your people your word. That the people of God would reflect the glory of God. And Father, we just want to say thank you for all of those hard and molding experiences that would shape us into the image and character of our Savior. We admit that we don't like them, but we certainly like the result of them, and we love the promise that accompanies that, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. What a tremendous statement and promise that we have in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off where Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And uh, I'd just like to begin tonight's study following on the heels of that story of sexual temptation by reading the advice of a father to his son. The father is Solomon. And he writes in the book of Proverbs, in a couple chapters, devoted entirely to sexual temptation and the result thereof. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Joseph was young. He was handsome. He was vulnerable in a foreign place. And while he was busy serving Potiphar and serving the Lord, Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes at her and was very upfront about her intentions. She just grabbed him and basically says, hop in bed with me. And he refused day after day after day. One of the secrets is that he closed the gate that temptation enters. He could have thought about that and just said, well, hey, maybe I should just stay here in the house and and be a good witness and just kind of pray for her. He knew that the best and most courageous thing to do was to leave. It was a lot easier. It took less strength and fortitude to give in to the temptation than to run out of the house. It took guts. It took stamina to get up and run. And he suffered great consequences. There's an old proverb that says, He who would not enter the house of sin must not camp at the doorstep of temptation. And a man who goes into her, Solomon said, is reduced to a crust of bread. How many people we have seen 
who were at one time bearing such fruit in the Lord. But things started a little bit slowly, and they had things under control at first. First it was just a glance, then a nod, then a smile, and then a conversation, then a flirtation. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon a bonding developed. An emotional attachment developed. Pretty soon they're caught in the vortex of their own sin, calling it love because they feel like they found it nowhere else. Joseph could have come up with several excuses, but he refused to do it. And so she accuses him of rape. Verse 19, so it was when his master heard the words of his wife. Verse 19 of chapter 39. The words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And then Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. It seemed like the tide is just always against poor little Joe. Ever since he dreamed his first dreams and told his brothers and told his father and got in trouble for that and then was put into a cistern and sold to the Ishmaelites and went down to Egypt worked at Potiphar's house, it seemed like things had taken a turn upward, only in his integrity to be sold, or excuse me, to be put in a dungeon. Now, none of this was his own fault. He was doing everything right instead of wrong. You know, the ancient Egyptians, I should say, not just the ancient Egyptians, a lot of people still have the prevailing idea almost of karma. I find a lot of Christians still believe in karma. They won't say karma, but they believe that if you're good, good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things happen to you. Well, that was the opposite with Joseph. He did everything right, and everything wrong happened to him. And if he would have seen that only through human eyes, he would have gotten bitter and been in despair. If he saw through God's eyes that somehow there was providential care involved, that was the only thing that would get him through it. Perspective is absolutely everything. You can say, woe is me, or you can say, all things, including this thing, works together for my good and for God's glory. Joseph happened to see things that way. He lived like that. He refused to become bitter, even though the tide was incessantly against him. He had an attitude wherever we find this man, whether in Potiphar's house, whether in prison, or prime minister in chapter 41, whatever he does, he makes a decision that he'll be the best. He'll be the best. Excellence follows Joseph wherever he goes. He has the Midas touch. Whatever he sets his hand to and mind to, he does it well. I really appreciate those who, in whatever they set their hand to, put the mark of excellence on it. Not just say, good enough, can't see it from my house. And instead, I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. He's watching. His eyes see that nail that was hammered there. God sees it. And Joseph decided, if I'm going to be in Potiphar's house, 
I'll be the best slave he ever had. I'll be such a good slave that he'll take notice and God will get the glory. And when he was in prison, he thought, hey, I'll be the best prisoner this jail has ever had. I'll be the model prisoner. And he could have complained and yelled and screamed and said, it's not right. It's not my fault. But instead, he set his hand and his mind and heart to giving God the glory. I have a letter that I received a few years back from an acquaintance who was at one time a pastor. He's now in prison. I don't know if he's gotten out by this time or not. He might have. He was sentenced for a crime he did not commit down in Texas. Few of us got wind of what had happened, how this man was unjustly accused. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was thrown into prison and uh, has just been there for a number of years. And I decided to write to him, and we were supporting his family. And he said, Dear Skip, I want to thank you for the most welcome letter of support. Your commitment of help and prayer means so much. The shock of being in prison was great, but even so, the fact that we had not heard from our brethren. Thank you for coming by way of letter to share with us. I can't forget the words of our Lord. I was in prison and you came to me. Paul's words, remember those in bonds and so forth. Listen to this paragraph. It reminds me so much of Joseph. As for this prison experience, I could tell you a lot. I hope to do it face to face sometime soon. For now, I will just say that Jesus is here. What a great realization to come to when you're behind bars. I'm in prison, but... Jesus is in prison here too. Men are coming to the Lord and we are doing what we can to give them a good foundation. We have much to combat in the way of cults and other fruitcakes. But the Lord is working. Pray for men here. Pray for the Bible school that I'm trying to get started here. Pray for unity among the brethren that a good core group of leaders would start to work together. Pray for our prison chaplains that they may recognize the church here. Pray that I would become more sensitive to the needs around me for wisdom to deal with each one of these men as the Lord would have me to do. What a thing to ask for. He didn't say, pray that I get strong, man. He said, pray that God gives me the wisdom to be sensitive to these men. You know what that reminds me of? It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul's rotting in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he writes the most outrageous letter of joy called the book of Philippians. He's sentenced for crimes he didn't commit. He's in the worst area of confinement in the Roman prison, a dark, dank cell. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Either a nut would write that or someone who understands God's providential and sovereign care. There's no no in-between on that one. And he knew that the Philippians were worried about him. They had concern. And he said, brethren, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. And the fact that my bonds are in Christ is evident through all of the palace guard. Many were coming to Christ. Prisoners were chained to Paul the Apostle. Now, I've never heard of a congregation being chained to their pastor, but there was one in the New Testament that was. Imagine being chained to Paul the Apostle. That's your guard duty. Paul figured can say anything I want. They can't escape. (laughs) And in the praetorium of the Mamertine prison in Rome, the guards kept watches of between four and six hours, usually six hours at a time. Six hours chained to the Apostle Paul. 
You can just imagine, you know, I have a thought. And just, you know, laying it all out, giving the gospel to him. And the gospel was being further. What other way, Paul figured, could these prison guards come to know Christ unless somebody like me were here in the prison? They're not going to come to the local Roman fellowship. They're not going to come to Calvary Chapel. But they're going to come here because they have to. They're chained to me. That was Joseph's perspective. It was the furtherance of the glory of God and the furtherance of the plan of God. Joseph figured that his prison ministry was God-given. I've read the life of Joseph through several times, and I never read once where he speaks angrily or bitterly against his brothers for selling them to the Ishmaelites after putting them in the pit. Now think of his life. He went from a pit to Potiphar's house to uh, prison to the palace. They all begin with P's. It's funny how that works out. But in all of that, he saw God's hand. In fact, let's peek ahead just a couple chapters to chapter 45. One of my favorite sections of the holy book. Chapter 45, Joseph could not restrain himself before those who stood by him. So he cried out, make everyone go out from me. And he stood, no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Now remember, this is the first time in years they even thought, knew he was alive, found out. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, and the Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Again, the lesson of providence that we mentioned last week. Now that's one lesson that I hope is seeped into our minds and hearts. That God works by providence. Again, split the word in half. Pro-video. comes from the Latin provideo. To see in advance. Providence means that God takes the ordinary events of your life and manipulates them toward his desired end. Providence is different than miracles. Miracles is where God dramatically intervenes in your life against the laws of nature. And it's just like, whoa! Now, unfortunately, there are Christians who are just looking for a constant feeding of the miraculous. Expect your daily miracle. Unfortunately, what they call a miracle, I mean, it, you know, it's like, oh, look, it's miraculous. You know, a baby was born, that's miraculous. The sun was setting, that's miraculous. Everything's, no, it's not. That's the laws of nature that only God could do. But in the scheme of things, that's not miraculous. The miraculous is where God goes against the laws of nature and dramatically intervenes. But while everybody's looking for God to do something dramatic through miracles, 
God delights to work providentially. That is, he takes what you would say are ordinary events of your life and he works them. And he arranges them so that the outcome is his will, his glory, and what's best for you. All things work together for good to those who love God. That's a promise in the New Testament. That's providence. Joseph learned to see that, hey, you sent me here, but actually God was the one responsible, and by his providence I'm here. You look at it this way. Let's say God had an editing machine in heaven, and he had a film of Joseph's life. All in advance, all done from beginning to end. And there God is putting his own rendition together, splicing different parts. And so we see uh, Joseph's birth and his father getting all excited and his mother getting all excited. And uh, we see then the next scene, Joseph playing with his brothers, running around the uh, a tent and uh, having a great time. And then the next scene, we see him a little bit older when his father gives him that robe of many colors, that seamless long-sleeved robe. Then all of a sudden God says, oh, can't forget that. This is an important part. And he splices in where his brothers throw him in the pit. He goes, oh, can't forget that prison scene either. Got to keep him in prison for a couple years. Now what if God were to allow Joseph to see that video at the beginning of his life? He would say, God, if I'm your chosen person, choose somebody else, all right? No thanks. I don't want the job. But looking back, he saw the unmistakable hand of God giving him the prison. God brought him to prison. You can sit there all day long and say, it was the devil that sent him to prison. I beg your pardon. God, by his will, stuck him there. Because God's view of what is prosperous is so different from the Americana view. I don't want to, well, I do want to shatter your perspective. We think that we ought to be God's special little person over on the side, and bad things happen to other people, never to us. Because God loves us, you know, we're just sort of kept in this little bubble, and uh, prosperity, it means that uh, it's just going to flow real easy for us, and it's going to be comfortable in just a great period. But God will, by prescription, give you trouble. Because what will happen at the other end will be, you'll be a lot stronger. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, no chastening seems pleasurable for the moment, but grievous. Grievous. Nobody likes to get, go through times of trial or chastening. But he said, the end result is that it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised by it. Joseph was one to submit to the knocks. Charles Spurgeon said, God gets his greatest soldiers from the highlands of affliction. Samuel Rutherford in the 1600s in one of his letters said, Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord, who makes deep furrows in my soul? He's not an idle husbandman. He purposes a crop. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's doing. And God has my good and his glory principally in his view at the other end. Joseph learned that beautiful lesson of God's providence. We call it Murphy's Law. He called it God's providence. Hmm. 
Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And then chapter 23, whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it prosper. But again, the definition of prosperity in God's book is a lot different from what some of our view may be. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler, or cupbearer, the guy who was responsible for being the uh, confidant to the king and the chief baker. So he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, in the palace where Joseph was confined. Kings in those days, monarchs, were very arbitrary and dictatorial in their methodology. We don't know what it was that offended the Pharaoh. It could have been something as simple as burnt toast. Could be that the chief cupbearer stubbed his toe and spilt the wine all over the Pharaoh's robe. He said, okay, that's it. You got my Persian carpet soaked in my robe. You're off to prison. Could have had a bad day. Kings were known to do that kind of stuff. That's not important. What is important is where they ended up, next to Joseph. And you're going to start seeing incredible elements being woven into the story at this point. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while. I love this. Joseph is in charge, but he serves them. He's sort of the boss of the prisoners, but he serves them. He stays busy and productive. You know, no matter what station you find yourself in life, you can serve. You can serve. Don't you think Joseph could have thought, listen, I can't serve God here. I'm in prison. Wait till I get out. When I get out, I'll have the opportunity perhaps to go back to the land of Canaan and to serve the Lord. But he decided that wherever he was at, he would serve. He would become productive. And so he sees these two fellows and he begins to serve them. And that's, again, an important principle in Scripture. In the book of Philippians, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not look on just his own affairs, but also on the affairs and concerns of others. Joseph lived that. And the butler and the baker, the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, dreamed a dream. Both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of the Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We've dreamed a dream and there's no interpreter of it. Now notice how sensitive Joseph is. Joseph is in charge of their custody, but he walks by one morning. And he happens to notice the doleful look on their face. The kind of things that those who are insensitive would just simply walk away from. He just noticed their countenance had fallen. He was a sensitive individual. Sharp. You know, communication is interesting to study. It is said that when a person communicates to another person... The content, the content, the embodiment of the communication, the content of the message is only 7% of what is totally communicated. 38% is the tone. 
What if your wife came in and you said, you look beautiful today? Or what if she came in and you said, you look beautiful today? (laughs) The tone makes all the difference, right? Same words, different meaning. But the nonverbal communication, the way you present yourself, the eyes, the body language, is over 55%. What if your wife came in and you said, yeah, you look great. Or you were reading a newspaper, oh, honey, you look really pretty today. It would be an insult to her. Your nonverbal communication speaks louder than the content or the tone. Joseph could read the body language. He was sensitive to the countenance. And he noticed, hey, how come you're sad? I like that. That's a good characteristic. And he said, we've dreamed a dream and there's no one to interpret it. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Now, he presents himself as the messenger or the agent of God to interpret the dream. He goes, look, God interprets the dream. Tell me. He puts his faith on the line. He says, tell it to me. Now, he's had a little bit of experience at dreams, hasn't he? Got him into trouble. When he was like, leave it to Beaver, telling his brothers the dreams that he had of them bowing before him. But he was an expert on dreams, and he knew that dreams can be a communication from God. At least it happened to be that way in his life. What's beautiful is that he's using his experience to further the glory of God. He says, interpretations belong to God. And he's using their experience to provide a witness. Like Paul, who was in prison, who said, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Reminds me of another Hebrew youth who was in prison named Daniel in a foreign country. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Babylon. And he hears that Daniel can interpret dreams. And so Daniel comes before him and Nebuchadnezzar says... Hey, I I hear that you can interpret dreams. He said, O king, there's no one on earth who can give you the answer to your perplexity, but there's a God in heaven who knows all things, and he's revealed to you what will happen in the latter days, and he's revealed to me your dream. But he gave glory to God, and Joseph does that here. The chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossom shot forth, its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed it, the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, the interpretation, this is the interpretation of it, the three branches are three days, and within three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. Now, that was good news. First one's great, no problem. The dream is from God. God is using the dream to give this guy a picture of Daniel's ability that a couple years after this event, he will remember, he'll call it to his mind when he's working again for the Pharaoh, will bail Joseph out of prison, Joseph will interpret Pharaoh's dream, and the story goes on. What I find interesting is the way God gives the dream, God condescends to use the language that they were familiar with. What is more familiar to someone who is the cupbearer of the king than to have a vision of grapes growing on a vine and holding a cup and pressing the grapes into it? It's something that they could understand. What kind of a dream did Nebuchadnezzar have? What did he see in his dream? An image. He was an idol worshiper. He had images all around Babylon. He could relate to idols, and so God used an idol to speak to him. This great image in the book of Daniel. 
Now, so he says, you know, you're going to get your old job back, basically. So that's good news. But remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh. and Get me out of this place. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and... I had three white baskets on my head. Now, he was the baker. No doubt, he and his entourage would carry baskets of baked goods to the Pharaoh on a daily basis. If you go back to the ancient Near East, men would carry burdens upon their heads. If you go to Israel today, you see men and women carrying baskets of things, balancing them perfectly on their heads as they weave through the streets of Jerusalem. Sometimes they'll have to run, walk up and down steps, you know, dodge uh, donkeys coming through the streets or Mercedes or whatever. Just, and the, the thing just stays up there. They've got a good balance. Men could carry a burden that would take three men to lift up from the ground. Consequently, the head and the neck muscles were very well developed from some of these guys in the ancient times. Women were not allowed to carry burdens on their head in Egypt, only on their soldiers, so, uh, shoulders in the ancient times. Of course, in Israel, they carry them on their head, men or women. So he, uh, he had three white baskets on his head. In the uppermost basket, there were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. The birds ate them out of the basket on my head. He, he thought, hey, the first guy had a great interpretation, so this is going to be a great one too. Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. You know, Joseph was in season and out of season. It was the truth. It was the truth. If they liked it, he said it. If they didn't like it, he said it anyway. I mean, he said what was the truth. It didn't sit well with this guy. And it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast, which was very common for a king in those days. They would celebrate their birthdays with a mandatory party. <laughs> that have a feast, you'd have to come and give the king a present and celebrate. And part of the festivities in the Egyptian times of the ancient Near East is that offenders in prison were often released. And so it was on his birthday, he made a feast for his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler, or the cupbearer, and of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. Now, put yourself for just a moment, in Joseph's sandals. Joseph said, okay, here's the interpretation. You're going to get back your job from the Pharaoh. Now, when you do, remember me. Remember, I was the guy that interpreted this dream, all right? Yeah, okay, man. When the guy was released on his birthday, Pharaoh's birthday, and he got his job back, Joseph thought, hot diggity dog. I'll wait a couple days and Guy will come walking down here with a key ring and let me out. So he waited a couple days. His hopes were high. Waited a week. Waited a couple weeks. After about the third or fourth week, his hope is diminishing a little bit, right? After about six months, he knew he was forgotten. But look at the first verse of the next chapter. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. 
He was in prison two more years after this event. Don't you think you'd get tempted to get a little bit angry and bitter at God if you were to see it from man's side and not God's side? Okay, let's suppose for just a moment that it happened as Joseph would have wanted it. Let's just say the guy got his job back and says, Pharaoh, hey, thanks a lot, man, but listen, there's a guy in prison named Joseph. He didn't do anything wrong, but he got put there for a crime he didn't commit. He interpreted my dream. Would you let him go? Hey, sure, no problem, let him out. Where would Joseph have gone? To Canaan, his home. And if he would have gone home, who would have interpreted Pharaoh's dream two years later? No, God wanted him to stay in a handy-dandy place, and it happened to be prison. Because God had something much greater and much higher for Joseph to fulfill. God didn't want Joseph to watch sheep back in Canaan. God wanted Joseph in Egypt to become prime minister, to become second in command, so that eventually he could bring the Hebrews, the sons of Jacob, into the land of Goshen, where they could produce and multiply away from the Canaanite filth and idolatry. God had a bigger plan. Joseph didn't know all of God's plan as of yet, but it will get unfolded as he goes along and he looks back. <laughs> there is a lesson before we move on. You will be sadly disappointed if you put your trust in a man. What if Joseph's trust would have been in that cupbearer, in that butler? And he would have gotten really frustrated and angry. As long as your hope is in man, you will be frustrated and disappointed. As long as your hope is in God, He will never let you down. Because God is the only one of whom it can be said, He works all things out for your good. No human being can have those same properties. And so Jeremiah 17 speaks to me. It says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. Yeah, that's true of Joseph, right? The heat was turned up. The oven was hot. Its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The second lesson is the lesson, is the lesson of God's timing. We all hate lessons of faith, right? We would rather live by sight. We hate to learn patience. Tribulation worketh patience, the scripture says. The only way to get patience is not to buy the best-selling book on how to have it. Tribulation will work it. Trials, dungeons, pits will give you tremendous amounts of lessons of God's patience and God's timing. That's how you get it. But God has a perfect time in your life. You might be in a period of leanness at this point, but God has his time. God hasn't forgotten about you. Some of you are tempted to think God has forgotten about you. I know that for a fact. You're wondering if perhaps you're the only one that God has left out. Tonight you've come here and your heart is sunk and you're wondering if God perhaps hasn't overlooked you. He's interested in everybody else around you but you. How do you think Mary and Martha thought when Jesus decided to delay his coming instead of 
healing Lazarus when he was in his last stages of a terminal disease. I'll tell you how they felt. As soon as Jesus came to Bethany, they said, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. That's how they felt. Jesus said, take that stone and roll it away. Lord, no, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) Sometimes nothing like the old King James works. He's been rotten in there four days. Oh, but this is for the glory of God. Lazarus come forth. Oh, they had no idea what God had planned. All they were concerned with is the immediate timing. Alleviate the pain. Change my circumstance. Deliver me from it. No, Jesus said, I'll deliver you through it. What I have out the other end is much better than you could ever imagine. Here's your brother, alive in perfect health. God's timing. So at the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. And yesterday I read this whole story to my son. I figured this is going to be great. I'm going to give him all these lessons of faith. And almost every verse he stopped me and says, don't tell me, I know the rest. And he had the whole story of Joseph's life from being sold into Egypt, going to the Ishmaelites, all the way out the other end, completely memorized. It's like, Nathan, you're no fun. <laughs> now, this chapter is awesome. It's awesome. It's just fun. You just want to kind of camp on it a while because it, it is an incredible story of going from rags to riches. It's really a success story. The providence of God begins to unfold and Joseph sees it in his life. It's been two years now where he's been waiting in prison. But he's going to go from adversity to prosperity in one chapter. By the way, both of those are tests. You know that, don't you? The test of adversity will test the depth of your trust and your stability. Just how much do you trust God? Just how strong are you in the faith? Adversity will test that. What would it take to turn you away from Jesus Christ? Adversity will test that. How far will you follow Jesus? Will you follow him in the face of famine? Will you follow him intensely when you lose your job? When the doctor says it's terminal? When the doctor says you've got six months left to live, will you trust him then? Adversity will test that. Prosperity is also a test. In fact, perhaps it's an even harder test than adversity. More men and women have fallen in prosperity than adversity. J. Oswald Sanders said, not every man can take a full cup. It's a hard lesson. For prosperity will test your integrity of the position God brings you to. Herod couldn't handle it. Outwardly, he prospered to the extent that when he walked into the amphitheater in Caesarea, in the book of Acts, people started shouting, it's the voice of a God and not a man. He liked that. And Josephus tells us that he had this silver robe, kind of a foil, lame kind of a look, and he was just kind of strutting through the amphitheater there at Caesarea, thinking, oh, I am a God. And God struck him with worms and he died on the spot. Josephus records it. Nebuchadnezzar could not handle the test of prosperity. He walked through the courts of Babylon one day and he looked over the city and he said, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built for my glory? 
shouldn't have said that. As soon as the words were dripping off of his lips, he became mad. His nails grew out like claws, hair grew over his body, and he contracted a strange but documented medical disease called lycanthropy. He acted like an animal for seven seasons until he was so humble that he turned his life to God. He couldn't handle that prosperity. It got to him. Joseph handled well the test of adversity, but how will he handle prosperity? It's seen in this chapter. Love it. Here's his dream. Suddenly there came out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Behold, seven other cows came up after them, out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. Have you ever had a nagging dream? You wake up, shake yourself, you go back to sleep, and the dream comes back. Some of us have had them in childhood or adolescence. It's that frightening thing that comes back to haunt us in the night. He wakes up. He slept and he dreamed a second time. And suddenly, seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt. Now notice that the dream encompasses the lifeblood of the nation of Egypt, the flocks and the crops. That was the economic stability. And it troubled him. He's the Pharaoh. Perhaps there were signs of a famine coming. Or, or perhaps the magicians had, in their weird incantations, you know, uh, let him in on some future prophecy. We don't know. But it troubled him, whatever it was. So he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise guys, or the wise men. And the pharaohs told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. The magicians, the word in the Hebrew in this text, is the Hebrew word chart umim. And it refers to an elite group of Egyptian priests who were known for their study of the ancient hieroglyphics. They could read hieroglyphics and interpret them to the pharaohs. They studied art. They studied science. They studied soothsaying. They studied dreams. Imagine having a college course, Dreams 101. Divination 101. That's what they studied. They were honored men, worthy of respect in the Egyptian court. These were the same group of men, not the same men exactly. They died, but the same... Uh, type, class of people that Moses will meet later on as he stands before Pharaoh. They couldn't interpret it. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, Oh, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each dreamed a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And there was a young Hebrew man with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. And he restored me to my office, and he hanged him. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. 
And they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. He shaved and he changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. A little bit of trivia for you history buffs. The Egyptians were fanatics about being clean-shaven. They'd shave their beard, they'd shave their heads. In fact, the only time they would allow growth is during times of mourning, they would let the beard grow, which was the opposite of the Hebrews who during a time of mourning would shave. Um, In some of the Egyptian artifacts and hieroglyphics, you will see uh, portraits of Egyptian men with beards, but they were fake beards. They were painted hair that were glued onto the chins of the Egyptian uh, men and the leaders, and the shape of the goatee or the beard was determined by the rank. But they didn't want to grow their own. They wanted to keep clean shaven and let it just be pasted on, you know, for the event. Sort of like a, you'd wear a wig. They wore a chin wig during those times. So Joseph, knowing that uh, you wouldn't be caught dead in front of a pharaoh with facial hair, he shaved. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have dreamed a dream. There is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can interpret a dream, understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I love this guy. He's always looking for any open door to glorify God. Any mention. He'll just kind of hop right in. Hey, I hear you can interpret dream. These guys tell me, this guy here says it came to pass. Well, it really isn't me. It's the Lord. This is the turning point in Joseph's life. Two years in a prison. Before that in Potiphar's house. Falsely accused. Before that in a pit. Before that misunderstood by his brothers. This is the turning point. It was an ordinary day in prison. Bread and water being served under the bars. Then all of a sudden, hey, Joe, Pharaoh called for you. Shave. He wants you to interpret his dream. Now the good news starts. By the way, there's a beautiful scripture in Proverbs 21. Some of you may have committed to memory. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the channels of water, he controls it wherever he wishes. God put the dream in Pharaoh's mind, in Pharaoh's heart, and put it on Pharaoh's heart through his chief cupbearer to get Joe out of prison. The Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood at the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking, fat, and they fed in the meadow, and behold, and he tells them the whole dream all the way through. In verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of the Pharaoh are one, and God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven cows are seven years. The seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Pharaoh was all ears. He's probably nodding at this point. Hmm. Now this was very severe because Egypt is an irrigated land. It does not depend on rainfall. How much rainfall does Albuquerque get on the average year? Anybody know offhand? How many? Nine inches of rain. Okay, now this is known as a pretty dry area of the United States. 
nine inches of rain. Egypt gets, at best, on an average, this area of the Nile, about an inch per year. The thing that gives it its life is the upper Nile that forms that delta. And, and it's such a lush region. And it was irrigated uh, by channels, and they would have foot pumps that would irrigate the water into their uh, vegetable gardens. The water came out of the uh, interior of Africa and spilled up into the uh, area of the Upper Nile, and the land of Egypt was just uh, a beautiful farming area. But the prediction is that a famine's going to come. So something is going to happen probably in the interior of Africa, some kind of a drought, some kind of a famine, perhaps a lack of rainfall at the, uh, the mouth of the river, and uh, it's, it's just not going to flow its banks like it should. And, of course, what happens then is the silt doesn't get carried to the land of Egypt. That happens at flood time. You get a lot of water going through, and the, the sediment, which really provides the brown soil, won't be carried to the Nile Delta, and uh, nothing will grow. And so verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. This famine, by the way, was also sent, I believe, from God. It was all part of God's providential plan for the children of Israel. Number one, to get Jacob and his sons out of Canaan because they were already influenced by the pagan practices of the Canaanites. Number two, put them in the land of Goshen, a garden spot, where they can grow and multiply and get big. And then later on, another Pharaoh can come who will afflict them, and they'll cry out to God, and God will bring them through the wilderness into the land of Canaan once again some years later some 430 years later when they will uh, occupy the land under Joshua. It's all part of God's plan. So the plenty, verse uh, 31, will not be known in the land because of the famine following. It will be very severe. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. Let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. You know what I like? Is that Joseph was a man of vision. And Pharaoh's going to follow that. This is good advice, okay? In view of the fact that bad times are coming, let's make the most of the good times. Let's stimulate the economy here. Let's stimulate the growth of the farmers. Let's take advantage of it, but let's store and plan for the future. I wish the leaders of our country would have thought that far in advance all the way along. Right after World War II, when things started getting on the up and up, they said, okay, great, but... Let's not put ourselves into an incredible national debt that escalates exponentially. Let's not teach our people to live by credit cards and things they can't afford. But it's always living for the now. And Joseph said, no, let's plan for the future. Let's take advantage of it. Let's take 20% and store it up so that we'll be able to survive during that time. 
So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this man in whom is the Spirit of God? Notice what they notice about him. This guy is the Spirit of God. And Joseph, or excuse me, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. So, you shall be over my house and all my people. You shall be ruled according to your word. All my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in his second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man shall lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath pa a I like Joe better. And he gave him as his wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, and Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Which means he's been in Egypt 13 years. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went throughout all of the land of Egypt, and the seven plentiful years the ground brought forth abundantly. We'll finish off the text uh, next time. What a trip. Had he any idea when he was shaving that day? Did he have a robe on? And a chariot with his own license plate that probably said number two? (laughs) Had he any idea that he would have the Pharaoh's signet ring, which was comparable to having the signature of approval for any financial expenditure. Hey, whatever you want, man, you got my signature ring. Just stick that in the wax and it'll be good anywhere in Egypt. You can have whatever you want. The test of adversity, the test of prosperity. Joseph will pass both. Also something that is noteworthy, both of those areas of his life were sent to him by God. I made a big deal out of the adversity and how God can send the famine, how God can send the prison experience, and indeed God did in Joseph's life, and Joseph admitted to that. He said, oh, no, no, this thing's from God. This whole event, God orchestrated this. But God also was the one who prospered Joseph and set him up above all of the nations of the ancient Near East. That's an important lesson. Sometimes that's hard for us to watch God prosper. Oh, hey, when person's in the test of adversity, oh, we're the first ones to comfort him. When God starts raising him up and prospering him, you know, we'll go only so far with you. When God starts lifting you up and prospering you and blessing you, hey, forget praying for you anymore. You don't need it, obviously. Forget supporting you anymore, Joseph. I don't know. This must be carnal, not of God. Well, it was of God. And I know that the faith teachers make a big deal about positive confession and Um, you know, uh, prospering financially to the extent where it is heretical. The flip side of that is there's an awful lot of negative Christians who think that to be poverty-stricken is, you know, that's just from God. And anything above that, okay, well, you're not as spiritual as I am. 
And that's sad. God prospered Joseph. God made him prime minister, and he exercises a tremendous influence on all of the world. And uh, we'll pick up Joseph's family life with his new wife and kids uh, next week. Um, again, uh, for the sake of trivia, a lot of people have wondered, in fact, attacked the Bible. They read this chapter and they go, wait a minute, this is outlandish. Since when would a slave in one day be lifted from prison and unknown to become prime minister in Egypt? That is a ridiculous story. That's never happened historically. That's because those people have never researched far enough. There is actually a story that comes to us from Asia Minor in 1741. A 13-year-old kid by the name of Ali Bey was captured as a slave and at 13 years of age was taken to Egypt and he was raised up in a position in the 1700s as the second in command of Egypt. Almost like the story of Joseph. That's documented. How could it have happened with Joseph? Obviously it was God, but there are some natural elements I think God could have used. For instance, scholars believe that the Pharaoh who was upon the throne was a Hiskas king which means his bloodline was that he was a, uh, uh, a Bedouin um, from the Arabian desert. There was a series of kings, Hiskos kings, that ruled in Egypt. They were Bedouins that took over Egypt, and they arose to leadership. And because they were of Arabian descent, Semitic descent, um, they could not find anyone among the Egyptians that they would feel as loyal to them and trustworthy. They thought, hey, these people are you know, going to try to take the throne away from me. But Joseph had more of an akin in bloodline than any of the Egyptians. Moreover, he had a lineage of being, or a history of being faithful. And um, since he came from the land of the Canaanites, and since there was more of a bloodline, and he proved himself faithful to Potiphar and in the prison, he was probably in the Pharaoh's eyes, hey, you're trustworthy. You pulled off this great interpretation. You have a history of being trustworthy. You're closer in line to my blood lineage, I can't trust any of these Egyptian jokers. I feel like my throne uh, is um, uh, in jeopardy. So you're second in command. Actually, it would be a clever kind of a um, political move. Later on, the Hiskos kings were kicked out of Egypt. And that's where we read Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. There arose a king, a pharaoh, who knew not Joseph. He was one of the Egyptian pharaohs, and he did not sympathize with Joseph or the Israelites in the land of Canaan, and the persecution begins after the Hiskos kings are kicked out. So, interesting trivia for you if you are history buffs. The beautiful thing is the providence of God. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Don't worry, bros, God sent me here to preserve life. Oh, if we could say that about our lives. If in the midst of your trial tonight, you could say, God is working all things together for my good. No matter what I'm facing, God's weaving it together. Is it a terrible disease? Perhaps. Lack of a job? Perhaps. How deep is your trust? How big is your God? Is prosperity always measured by the almighty dollar? Not in God's economy. Could it be that God has something better for you? Perhaps. But what if I die? Well, think, if, is that, if that's the worst that can happen, and I'm not being, uh, this is not, I'm not using levity here, I'm serious. If death is the worst thing that can happen, if you're a believer, you've got it made in the shade. 
to experience his glory forever and ever. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine, nakedness, distress, peril? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God loves you. And tonight, within your bodies, within your clay pots, your earthen vessels, is a glorious treasure. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of you. Oh, you might be perplexed, but you're not crushed. God knows what he's doing. That I'm confident of. What's God doing? I don't know. Do I wonder? Lots of times. But God knows what he's about. God knows what he's doing. And that I'm confident in. Father, it is absolutely a privilege to serve such a caring, sovereign, providential, and all-powerful God. Your omnipotence floors us. It's beyond comprehension. You transcend our ability to understand. And yet along with that comes the peace that passes all understanding. As we pour out our heart to you, as we make known our requests to you. Lord, you and you alone have the roadmap to our lives and you can arrange the ordinary to give you glory. Thank you for your work in our lives. Whether it's in the miraculous or in the providential, it's still your work and it's still marvelous. We cling to you tonight. We trust in you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. His 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 name, amen.